You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. It is good to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> and uh, as you're turning there, let me just kind of set the stage uh, for where we're going. We're continuing in our series that we have titled Union with Christ. And in this series, we're just learning about the central truth, or what J.I. Packer calls the definition of Christianity. That when you put your trust in Jesus, he joins his life to yours such that you are now in Christ and he is now in you. And that's union with Christ and it changes everything. And so in light of that, we're going to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Uh, We're going to start in verse 13. So if you'll look there with me, and we'll read down to verse 16. Peter says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please uh, pray with me? Let's pray together one more time. Father... Uh, we just, I believe that in light of what Christ has done, all of life is holy, is now sacred and precious. There's no divide. Uh, but I can't help but think that a moment like this is particularly holy because you have set apart this moment and brought us all into this room for a reason. And so, God, I just pray that as your uh, word goes forth, um, that you would meet us where we are and that you would um, save the lost, you would comfort those who are hurting. You would bring about a life to those who are dead, um, that you would help us to see the beauty of who you are for us in Christ, and that we would surrender everything to you. So God, I just pray that you'd get me out of the way of that. Um, I pray that you would uh, just meet us right here where we are. And God, we ask you to do this in Christ's name and for his glory and for our joy. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in 1999, Tom Hanks and uh, Steven Spielberg came together to make one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Saving Private Ryan. Raise your hand if you've seen Saving Private Ryan. Okay, phenomenal movie, won a ton of awards. And so basically, to summarize the plot, the story is set in World War II, and it's about this guy, Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, and he's fighting in the war with his three brothers. And tragically, his three brothers are killed in the war, leaving him to be the sole surviving brother. And the U.S. government looks at this situation and says, there is no way we're going to let this poor guy's mom lose all four of her sons. And so what they do is they send a team of army rangers to go in behind enemy lines and to find and save Private Ryan. And so they go in and they find him and they bring him back to safety. But in the process of doing that, many of these guys lose their lives. And so it's this beautiful, powerful story about these guys giving up their lives in order to save Private Ryan, hence the name of the movie. And so when you get to the very last scene, you get all the way to the end of the movie, and you see that Private Ryan is old. And, and so here he is. He's old, and, and, and you see that you realize in this moment he's lived his entire life. You can kind of see in the picture there, he's got his, his family with him, his wife's with him, his kids, his grandkids, and he has brought them all to see the grave of this man 
the captain of these army rangers who died so that he could live. And in that scene, when Ryan stands in front of that grave and he, he sees this man's gravestone and he reads his name, he falls down to his knees and he starts weeping. And his wife comes over to him, and in that moment, he looks up at her, tears coming down his face, and he asks her a very simple question. Am I a good man? Am I a good man? And she says, of course you are. And he looks back down at the grave, looks at the name, then he looks back up at her, and he asks another question. Have I lived a good life? And she looks at him, and she says, you have. And so as you're watching this all unfold, you've seen the entire movie and it all kind of culminates in this moment. You're kind of left to wonder, why is he asking those questions in that moment? And I think he's asking those questions in that moment for two reasons. And those two reasons take us into what I want to talk about this morning. Okay, the first reason why he's asking those questions in that moment is because when we come to the end of our lives, those are the questions all of us are asking. Like, we want to know, did my life count for something? Did I live a beautiful and good life, or did I waste it? Like, there's an innate desire in every human being to live with a sense of meaning and purpose. We want to make our lives count for something. And so the question we should be asking now before we get to the end is, what is it that I'm living for? Like, what is my purpose? What should I be doing with my life now so that whenever I get to the end and I look back and I reflect, I can say honestly, you know what? I didn't live a life of perfection, but I lived a life of purpose before God and before others. That's the first reason why he's asking those questions, because those questions are rooted in your heart and in mine and in every human heart. But the second reason he's asking those questions is because when he's standing in front of the grave and he's staring at the name of this man who died for him, it, it hits him in a moment. This man died so that I could live. Like this guy, Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, he gave up 50 years of his life so that Ryan could live 50 more years of his life. And you see, he's got his family around him, and he realizes, man, this guy gave up the opportunity to be married and have children and have grandchildren so that Private Ryan could, could grow up and be married and have children and grandchildren. And so in that moment, this, the question that kind of comes welling up and screaming out of his soul is, Man, am I a good man? Like, have I lived a good life? Have I lived a life that's worthy of the sacrifice that this man made so that I could have life? And the reality is, if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, God calls you in the scriptures to ask that very same question in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Because the reality is, Jesus, here's the good news of Christianity, okay? Let me just get it right here. Here we go. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus came on a rescue mission for you. And in the process of saving you and bringing you back home to himself, he died so that you could live. And when you look at the glory of God's love displayed on the cross, like the sacrificial love of God on the cross, and you look at the promise of hope and life given to us in the resurrection, the only logical, natural question that should come welling up in your soul is, my God, you're so gracious. How, how am I to live in response to your grace? Like Jesus died so that I may live. The question is, live how? Like, what should we be doing with our lives in light of the good news of the gospel that Jesus died to give us our life back, to give us eternal life with God? What, what's our purpose now? And so that's the question that Peter is trying to answer when he writes his very first letter. He writes two letters. We're looking at 1 Peter this morning. And so look back with me at chapter 1, verse 13. 
And we're just trying to answer that question, okay? What's our purpose? How do we respond? How do we live in light of the fact that Christ died so that we can live, okay? And so you, you look at verse 13. The first thing Peter says, if you're looking at the text, is therefore. And now you guys know this. Anytime uh, you see a therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for? And the author's always getting ready to drop some massive point of application on you in light of what he just said in the previous context. And so when you see a therefore, God's trying to pull your eyes up in the context. And if you go back up in this case, Peter's referring back to all these gospel blessings from verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm also not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of highlight it, okay? So just listen. Just open your ears to the word of God, okay? If you go back in 1 Peter chapter 1, you start in verse 1. He says, because God has chosen you and has foreknown you in his love, and because he sprinkled you clean with the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, because God has shown great mercy upon you and causing you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse 4, because he's promised you an inheritance that's imperishable, which is God himself. Verse 9, because God promises, check this out, that no matter what happens to you on this earth, it will not change the outcome for you, which is the salvation of your souls. Verse 12, he sums it all up and says, because you have received this gospel, the greatest news in all the universe, so great, he says, that the angels long to stare into it because in the gospel they see the beauty of God's love for sinners. He says, you've received the gospel, and in light of all these gospel realities, all that is now true of you because of Jesus, he says, therefore, okay, here's how we should live our lives. Verse 13, preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter says, you want to know what our response should be in light of the reality that, that Jesus has died to give us this glorious salvation. That he came on a rescue mission and saved us to give us life. Here's your response. Peter says, first of all, I want you to set your hope confidently on the grace of Jesus that will be revealed to you in the future. Number two, I want you to work diligently for holiness in the present. I want you to set your hope on the grace of Jesus that's coming for you in the future. But I also want you to work diligently for holiness in the present. So that's how he says, that's how you should respond. That's how you should live your life. That's your new purpose in light of who you are in Christ. And it's that second half I want us to focus on. Work diligently for holiness in the present. Because if you notice, Peter says it's not enough just to set your mind on your future destination and say, look, man, Jesus is coming back, and when he does, his grace is going to like totally make me new, and so it really doesn't matter what I do now. Peter says, no, listen, you need to keep that horizon in front of you, but then you actually have to start taking steps in that direction now. Peter says, you keep that destination in front of you, where you're heading, but he says, you've got to move in that direction. Now you've got to point your life in that direction. And practically, he says, that looks like pursuing holiness in every area of your life. As, as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. That's our purpose. That's what we should be doing with our lives. Now, I just want you to kind of hold your finger on that word holy for a second. Because I want to talk about this word for a little bit because we, if we're honest, we struggle with this word. Okay, in the broader American culture, um, just like outside of the church, just like American culture, this is a word that rarely gets ever used in a positive way anymore. 
Um, you hear people talk about those who are holier than thou. And, and so the word is used in that case to describe someone who's arrogant and self-righteous and judgmental. And you think, if that's what it means to be holy, I don't want to be that. Um, and, and, or you kind of hear it, you hear it used as a curse word, right? Holy blank. And so in that case, holy is used as an adjective to modify some ex- expletive. Welcome to English class. Um, so holy blank, right? Or when we think of holiness... Especially in the religious South, we think of religious fundamentalism or legalism. And so like for me, growing up here, uh, holiness was basically reduced to uh, a set of you know, sins or taboos that you just need to abstain from. Don't do these things and you'll be holy. So don't cuss, don't drink, don't dance, don't do drugs, don't have sex, don't watch rated R movies. In high school, I couldn't dance to save my life. I didn't know where to buy drugs if I wanted them. I thought beer smelled like urine. Um, And I did not have a long line of girls trying to get next to me. So aside from the occasional cuss word and rated R movie, I was pretty holy in high school. (laughs) I was, right? If that's what holiness means. And so we look at it and we think holiness is kind of just about managing morality, right? Like here's a list, avoid the really big sins, don't do these taboo things, and you'll be fine. But here's the reality. What you've got to understand is holiness is not less than morality. I mean, it certainly has moral implications. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but it's more than that. It's not less than morality, but the, but the reality is it's so much bigger than that. So the question is, what is it? What does it actually mean to be holy? And if you want to understand holiness, then you need to notice the quote that Peter uses in verse 16. Look back down at the text. Notice he says, it is written... So he's quoting from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. That's important. Because if you go back and you read the book from which this quote comes from, you go back and you look at Leviticus, you see all these different things described as holy. Inanimate objects like tables are called holy. Utensils and bells and pots and spoons and all these kinds of things are called holy. And right away you realize that holiness can't just mean be moral. Like, those things weren't called holy because they were nice, well-behaved objects. Like, this table ain't never been drunk, so it's holy. Like, that's silly, right? It doesn't work. So in the Old Testament, what you have to realize is when something's called holy, it literally means it's been set apart. That's, what, that's all the word means. That the, the, the original word in Hebrew means this thing has been set apart for a singular purpose. It wasn't for common use. These objects had been set apart and devoted for the purpose of worshiping and bringing glory to God. That's what it means to be holy. Set apart for the singular purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. If you want kind of a modern example um, of what this is, you go to, go to a college football or an NFL game. I think I can use that illustration this time of year. You go to a football game and you watch the pregame, pre-game and you'll see footballs like flying around everywhere. Um, quarterbacks and receivers are warming up. They're playing catch. Um, punt returners are practicing fielding punts. Kickers are kicking the ball through the uprights or they're kicking it into that, that little net. You see footballs going everywhere, all over the place. But if you look over on the sideline, you'll see a nice neat row of 12 footballs and you'll see two officials standing there guarding them. And you can't just walk up and grab that ball and start playing catch with it. You want to know why? It's been set apart for a particular purpose. Those balls are holy. They're the game balls. They're not for common use, right? That's what it means to be holy. 
It just means you, you've been set apart for a particular purpose. And so then when you take that term, and all throughout the scriptures you see it applied to human beings, when the Bible calls human beings holy, it means that in light of the gospel, our lives are to be set apart for the singular purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. So it's not, it's not just, listen to me, it's not just about keeping a few rules. It's bigger than that. Look, look back at verse 15. Look at, notice how Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. So I don't know about you, but the language of all makes me uncomfortable. Because it's pretty intense. Like that's, that's all-encompassing. And for me, I don't have a problem setting aside certain parts of my life and devoting them to Jesus. But like all? Like you're asking me to set aside my need for control? And devote that to you? Like you're asking me to give that up and give that over to you? My need to perform? You're asking me to give that over to you? Uh, My need to be seen as a good and perfect pastor? You're asking me to give that to you? My relationship to food? My sexuality? Like what I do with my Tuesday night or my day off? My phone? Like do I really have to give my phone to you? Like you're asking me to give... The Bible's clear. If you're a Christian, it's not, it's not just certain parts of your life. It's not just, can't, you can't reduce it to a few rules. All your conduct means the way you conduct and you lead your whole life. Like your, whole, your entire way of being, your whole existence is now to be devoted and surrendered to Jesus. That's big. You, feel like you kind of feel the weight of that. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, this has massive implications for every area of your life. There's not a single area it doesn't touch. If you're in high school or you're in college and you're trying to figure out, like, what do I want to do with my life? I had four conversations with high school and college students in this room this week trying to answer the question, what's God's will for my life? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 is clear. Be holy in all your conduct. That's God's will for your life. It it changes how you even ask that question. What should I be doing with my life? Well, whatever you do, arrange it in such a way that you're becoming more like Jesus. Make that your goal. Um, if you're single, it changes how and who you date. Like, you can't devote your whole life to Jesus if you're dating someone who's not devoting their whole life to Jesus. Um, it changes how you spend your time together, how you interact with each other physically, right? Because it also has implications for your sexuality. It changes your relationship to your own body and what you do with your own body. Listen, we live in a world, there's a cultural current that says, my body is my body and you can or cannot tell me what to do with it. And you know that's silly because you'll get arrested for doing some things with it. We absolutely can tell you what to do with your body. <laughs> we can and we do. Like, the law tells you there's certain things you cannot do with it or we'll arrest your tail and put you in jail, right? Like, you can't just do whatever you want. And yet, and, and so what God is saying to you and, and when he says be holy in every area of your life is in that particular area, he's saying, listen, I designed your body with all its physical sensations and like all of that. Like I know how it's supposed to work and I'm asking you to set that part of you aside and give that to me and to pursue fulfilling those desires in keeping with my design for marriage because I've called you to be holy in every aspect of your life, to set everything aside and devote it to me. Changes your marriage changes the way you view and treat your wife or your husband before God. It changes the way you look at money. Not as a resource for you to hoard or to blow, you know, just for your own selfish purposes, but God's given that to you to be generous. He's given that to you to be set aside for his own kingdom purposes. It's his money. Um, It changes the way you treat your enemies, the people who've offended you. Right now, there's hurt. 
boiling in this room. So many of you came in this room hurt. I came in this room hurt. You came in this room struggling to forgive somebody who's cut you deeply. Can I really forgive that person? That person is an an active enemy or an old enemy in my life. And you're wondering, how in the world am I supposed to relate to that person? And God says, I'm asking you to give that to me. Set that aside and give that to me because I'm calling you to be holy in everything, including the way you relate to your enemies. (laughs) Changes the way you parent, changes the way you work, changes what you do when no one is looking I could go on and on and give countless examples. You want to know why? Because of that powerful, pesky little word, all. Peter says that's our response to this great salvation we've received. Jesus died so that we may live. How? So that we may set aside our whole lives and say, God, this is all yours. You can have it. You can have it. I'm not just going to give you a couple of hours on Sunday. But like, I'm going to devote my life. I'm not, it, 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 it's not going to happen just in a moment. I'm going to devote my whole life to surrendering everything in devotion and dependence upon you, Jesus. I'm going to give you all. So if you came in this room and you're asking the question, what should I be doing with my life? What's my purpose? There's your answer. Be holy. If we're honest, let me stop for a second. If we're honest, you're, if I'm in tune with you, you're feeling what I'm feeling, which is that, that this is a struggle. Okay, most of us in the room struggle to pursue holiness, or if we're really honest, sometimes we don't struggle. Sometimes we just don't. We just don't do this well. Um, I put myself in that category. I don't do this very well. Um, as, in the words of Kevin DeYoung, there's a hole in our holiness. So I'll put this uh, on the screen for you. Here's what DeYoung says. He says, there's a hole in our holiness, and the hole in our holiness is that we don't seem to care too much about holiness. Or at the very least, we don't understand it. Whatever the case, the problem is clear. Too few Christians look like Christ, and too many don't seem all that concerned about it. I'm, I'm very convicted by that, personally. What DeYoung is saying is that in much of the American church, there seems to be a, a lack of concern about the gap between what God calls us to and where we currently are in our lives. And so the question that demands is, why the lack of concern? That's the question I've been asking myself this week. Adam, why are you not as concerned about this? Um, Why is there a lack of pursuit for so many of us when it comes to being holy? And I think we can pull three reasons out of this passage uh, that Peter is trying to give us. And so I want to talk about three reasons why there's a lack of concern, why there's a hole in our holiness, okay? And the first reason why we don't pursue holiness is because we believe that holiness is undesirable. Undesirable. Who wants that? Like, holiness is kind of like the broccoli of the Christian life. (laughs) Like, you know it's good for you. You just don't really want it, right? Like, in my house growing up, you weren't allowed to get up from the table and go play until you ate your vegetables. And that's how many of us view holiness. It's something that's supposed to be good for me, but really it's just standing in the way of me having fun. Like, I want to play in my life, and I want to have fun, and this thing is standing in the way. And so we think holiness is about being prudish and proper and prim and, um, and posh. And like it's, you, know, you have to deny yourself and uh, you can't have any kind of pleasure or any kind of fun. And so it's undesirable. We don't pursue it. Who wants that? And what I want to help you see this morning is that far from being undesirable, true holiness is actually the deepest desire of every human heart, especially if you're a Christian. It's the the deepest desire of every human heart is to be holy, to be made holy, 
to be cleansed and purified and to be made brand new, to be put back together and made whole. Who doesn't want that? We long for that. And ultimately, I would argue that we all long for holiness because we all long for God, and God himself is the definition of holiness. Okay, let me show you that in this passage. Go back to verse 16. Look at what Peter says. He says, It is written, You be holy, and then look how he grounds the command. For I am holy, God says. Or you go back to verse 15, and he says, As one who called you is holy, you be holy. So if you want to understand holiness, you have to start with the fact that God himself is holy. He's the definition and the standard of holiness. He's completely set apart from everything else that he has made, and not just in terms of his power and his ability, but in terms of his character. Um, Jonathan Edwards said that the essence of true holiness is God's beauty, which consists primarily in his perfect love. God's holy and he's beautiful because he is love. Who doesn't want that? Like my love is is naturally curved in on myself. It it has to do with my own preferences for the most part. God's love is is, is totally different and set apart from that. It is endlessly self-giving. It's perfectly sacrificial. There's nothing more objectively beautiful than that. That's why, by the way, when you watch Saving Private Ryan or any movie like it, and you see somebody sacrifice their life and lay down their life and die so that someone else can live, something in you is deeply moved by that. Because you've just encountered a holy, sacrificial, God-like love. And the reality is, every single heart in this room longs to be loved like that. Do we not? There's a, there's a, there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart that only God himself can satisfy. And so what, I, what I'm trying to say to you is when Peter says, Be holy... He's, he's not throwing a blanket on your fun. He's actually, it's actually an invitation to joy. If you go back up in the context and you look at 1 Peter 1, verse 8, he describes God as joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's who God is. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. And the call to be holy is really just a call to pursue God. If you look at verse 14, he says, Listen, don't be conformed by your former passions and desires. Like, don't waste your passions and your desires on lesser pleasures. The things you used to pursue, that's right there there in front of you in the text. Don't do that. Those things can never satisfy your deepest longing for holiness, your deepest longing for God. So he says, instead of those things, be holy. Find not only your your salvation, but your satisfaction in the God who created you and pursued you and gave his life for you. But that's why we don't pursue it. We don't see it that way. We don't see holiness as as having something to do with the beauty of God's love for us. And so we think it's something that's just undesirable. It's broccoli. I'd rather have some fun. Second reason we don't pursue holiness is because, if we're honest, sometimes we believe holiness is unnecessary. It's not just that it's undesirable, but it's unnecessary. And so we think that because of Jesus and his grace, we no longer have to do anything. Now listen... um, the good news of Christianity, what makes, what makes Christianity different and set apart, actually, from every other religious worldview is that it says that we aren't saved based on what... You're not saved based on what you do. You're saved on, based on what Jesus has done for you. God's love doesn't depend on whether or not you're good. It's totally based on the fact that Jesus was good in your place. All of that is true. Everything I just said is true. But it's a false conclusion, then, to say, all right, I'm already forgiven 
God already accepts me because of Jesus, so it doesn't matter how I live my life. It's not true. If you've been around fellowship for long, you've heard us say this phrase so many times, the the famous line from Dallas Willard that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So look back at that phrase, obedient children, in verse 14. Just kind of put your eyes on that. God says, as obedient children, be holy. Um, Raise your hand if you're a parent. Okay, hands down. Let me ask you a simple question. Raise your hand if you expect your children to obey you. Like, do you actually have certain demands you put on them that you think are good for them? You expect them to obey? Raise your hand. You do? Okay, right. Is that what a good, loving parent does? Expects their children to obey? Of course we do. Here's, here's what the, my, the thought that struck me this week was, what makes me think that I can expect and demand my children's obedience, knowing that's what any good and loving parent does, but then I can turn around and look at God and say, because you're gracious, you can't ask me to obey you. And I use his own gospel against him, right? Like, because I'm justified and saved by grace, you can't ask me to obey you. That's just bad reasoning. Can I just... It's unbiblical reasoning. It doesn't work in any parent-child relationship, and it especially doesn't work in your relationship with God, the Father. Listen to me. Because he loves you, God expects you to obey him. And what he says for you is what is best for you. And he expects you to obey him. He, it's, it's, it's not optional. I kind of want to pull over and park on this for a second because there's this lie that I fell into for most of my life growing up in the church There's this lie in the American church that says that all that's required of me at all um, is that I pray this sinner's prayer, ask Jesus into my heart, and then once saved, always saved means I really don't have to be holy. Like I don't have to really do anything beyond that. And we kind of treat the sinner's prayer like this contract with God that he can't get out of. Like if I say these magic words and I've sort of got you, you know, like it sort of doesn't matter what I do now. It's It's just unbiblical. There's no, the Bible has no category for that outside of you're probably not a Christian if that's what you think. The, the pastor and author, J.D. Greer, says it like this. He says, um, praying a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, even if it's followed by a flurry of emotion and religious fervor, is no proof that you're saved. Enduring in that faith and pursuing holiness to the end is... And he's not saying anything the Bible doesn't say. This isn't about earning... But, 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 but so many times, you see, you see the biblical authors, Jesus himself, they don't shy away from talking about the effort and the exertion that's required in the Christian life. And, and, and the fruit of pursuing holiness is just the fruit of saving faith. Like, it's the evidence that you are, in fact, trusting Jesus. As Jared talked about a couple of weeks ago, it just gets worked out in your life in this passionate pursuit of becoming who you already are in Christ. I love, I'll give you one more quote on this. I love Jerry Bridges' little book, classic little book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And here's how Bridges kind of marries these two things of God's grace and our responsibility. He says this, No one can obtain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely as no one will obtain it without any effort on his part, God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. And that's why you come to Hebrews 12, 14, and he says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Bible, God calls us to pursue this like a determined athlete. 
You go over to Philippians 3 and Paul says, I'm training and I'm straining and I'm striving and I'm pursuing and I'm lunging and I'm reaching and I'm pressing on towards the goal of being transformed into the image of Jesus. Paul's not doing any of that to earn anything from Jesus. He's doing that in response to the grace he's been given in Jesus. So the answer to the question, what should we be doing? What's our purpose? It's that. It's that. Be holy. Pursue holiness. So the reasons we don't is because we often believe it's undesirable. Yuck, who wants that? We often believe that we use the gospel in this really ungospel, anti-gospel way, and we think, well, because of what Christ has done, it's unnecessary. And then the third and final reason we don't pursue holiness is we believe that it's unattainable. Like, we don't pursue it because it seems just it's too hard. It's too demanding, and let's be honest, all we're really doing is setting ourselves up to fail. If you're anything like me, You've had the thought once or twice, at least, in this sermon. Um, this all sounds great, Adam, but like I'm trying to pursue holiness, and I'm telling you, it's not working. Like I'm putting forth my best effort here, and I'm losing. I feel like I'm losing. I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm losing the battle. You want to talk about a war? We're in a war. And I feel like I'm losing the battle with sin and with my flesh and with my anxiety and I'm asking myself, like, I, I hear you, man, but like, what's the point of even trying? This is unattainable. And I know for me, and I spent a lot of time doing this yesterday, um, I often look at where I'm at currently, and, I, and, I, and then I take a look at I know where I'm supposed to be in terms of my character and my life, and all I see is the distance. That's all I see. And I, and I see like, man, the journey from here to here is just hopelessly long and arduous and tenuous and it's, it's painful and, and man, it's impossible. And so I kind of stand back and I look at the horizon and I go like, I, I don't know if I'll ever get there. How am I going to get there? Holiness just seems unattainable. And so it really does kind of leave us with a final question I want to close with. How do we get there? How do we get there? How do we stay on this journey of actually becoming the men and women God made us to be, fully redeemed, fully transformed into the image of Jesus? And the answer to that question is found in our union with Christ. It's found in our union with Christ. Just to remember, the definition of union with Christ means that when you trust Jesus, he joins his life to yours, and you are now in Christ, and Christ is now in you. That's union with Christ. And so I want to close real quick with two very practical pictures of how this truth, this union with Christ, gives you everything you need on the journey of becoming, being and becoming holy. Okay? It gives you everything you need for the trip and the journey ahead. If you don't have these things with you, you're going to really struggle. Okay, so in light of the gospel, here's where we're going, and union with Christ gives you everything you need. The first thing it gives you, union with Christ is the anchor of holiness, okay? Union with Christ is the anchor. I want you to imagine an anchor, okay? We'll talk about that in just a second. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says this in chapter 6, of verse 19. Um, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The question is, what is the this he's talking about? And in the context, he's talking about God's promise that because you, you are in Christ, you are already made holy and acceptable to God because of Jesus. Listen to me. Because you're in Christ, you're already holy. It's who you are. You have a brand new identity. It's done. It's finished. You're sanctified. You're holy. 
And so that means when God looks at you, because you're in Christ, the Father, he sees Jesus. Because that's where you are, is in Jesus. And so he sees Jesus, and he sees the moral beauty and the purity and the perfect obedience of Jesus, which is now yours in Christ. And so he says, this is your anchor. This is your anchor for the journey. Think about an anchor. What's the purpose of it? An anchor is this just huge metal device, right, that literally keeps the ship tethered to the ground so that when the current pulls and the ship is tempted to drift, it's got an anchor. Uh, When the storms come and they threaten to sink the ship and sabotage the life of the ship, it's got an anchor. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is because you're in Christ, you have this sure and steadfast anchor for your soul, which means at the end of the day, you're safe. You're safe. It means when you fail and you will fail, you don't have to drown yourself in your shame and your guilt and your fear, and you can stop finding your identity in your, in your performance and your security and your performance. Listen, you're going to fail. But because you're in Christ, God is with you. God is for you. He's not disappointed in you. He's eternally delighted in you because you are already declared holy in Christ. You have an anchor for the journey ahead. Nothing's going to knock you off. You have an anchor. Because you are in Christ, you have an anchor. And because Christ is in you, you also have an engine. So I want you to imagine an engine. Union with Christ is not only the anchor of holiness, it's the engine of holiness. And here's what I mean. In so many places in the Bible, it says that when you trust Jesus, he puts his very own Holy Spirit in you. And you now have what Paul calls in Romans the spirit of holiness. God himself living in you. Like we cannot hear that enough. So Jesus, who overcame every temptation, who lived a perfect holy life for the glory of his Father, he he is in you, not only to make you holy, but to empower you to actually be holy, to live and lead a holy life. If I could illustrate this, I would use another one of my favorite movies from the 90s, which is Rudy, also a good football example this time of year. So Rudy, um, Rudiger, loved Notre Dame football, right? Wanted nothing more than to be on the team. But he was too small, too slow, too weak. But, but he actually overcame all those obstacles because he loved it more than anyone else. He worked harder than anyone else, and so he made the team. And then there's this powerful scene in the film where the coach looks at him, and the coach says, man, I wish God would put your heart in all my players' bodies. And what's so mind-blowing to me is the gospel says, that's exactly what God has done for you. He has taken the heart of Jesus, and he's put it in all his players' So Christ is in you. Like, can you imagine what power and resources you have to be holy? To say no to sin, to resist temptation, to repent when you fail and, 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 and not, not, get, not drown in that, but to put your eyes back on Jesus and keep pursuing him. Like, you, you can do it. You have the power in you to do it. And so I think of the great Soren Kierkegaard. He said this. He said, now with God's help, I shall become myself. Like, because you have the help of the Holy Spirit in you, you now have the power and the ability to become who you actually already are, which is holy. And so, what's your purpose in life? Uh, What should you be doing with your life in response to what Christ has done for you? Be holy as God is holy. And listen to me, be holy not as a bar to live up to, but as a gospel reality to live into. Um. I'm going to ask that you'd all stand and 
We're going to move now to, into a time of response. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come, come up. Just kind of keep your heart engaged with God in this moment. Um, we're going to enter into a time of response. We're going to take communion. We're going to come back to our, our seats and we're going to sing to God in response to what he's done. And as we kind of prepare our hearts, I want to share a, a real quick story. I, Facebook reminded me uh, in my time hop this week that it was a year ago this week that I taught my oldest daughter, Lucy, how to ride a bike. And in the video, um, you can see that she's scared and she's frustrated because she keeps failing. She's angry. She keeps failing, falling off the bike. And you can see me and you can hear me in the video saying like, hey, listen, man, dad's got you. I'm with you. I'm for you. If you fall down, I'll rush over and pick you up. You just, you keep your eyes on me and you keep pedaling. And so if you're, if you're in this room and you're asking the question like, man, how am I ever going to get there? The answer is you look to Jesus first and foremost and you keep your eyes on him and you keep on pedaling. And you remember the good news that you're, thankfully, you're not saved based on your pedaling. You're saved based on what he has done for you on the cross. And that's what we celebrate every week when we come to this table. The, the unbelievable, scandalous grace of Jesus. That his body was broken, his blood was shed, his life was poured out. And he died on this rescue mission so that we may live. If that's where your hope lies, if that's your, where you put your faith... You're a Christian, and we invite you to come and celebrate this meal. Um, the way we take communion here is you tear a piece of bread off and dip it in the cup, and we have stations on each side of me here and then in the back on each side, and we also have a gluten-free option back over here um, if that interests you at all. And so um, if you're in this room and you would say, man, this is not where I'm at. I'm not sure I want to be there or I do want to be, but I'm not. Um, I'm not following Jesus. I'm not trusting in him. Then I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Today, Hebrews says, could be the day of salvation for you. You've heard his voice. All you've got to do is respond. The good news is grace really does require nothing of you but to confess your own need for Jesus. You don't have to work. You don't have to perform. You don't have to purify yourself or go be holy and then come to him. You come to him as you are. He will make you holy. He will save you and transform you. So if you would make that decision today, man, I would love to talk with you. Jared's here. Luke's here. We would love to talk with you and, um, and, and serve you any way that we can. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would come now and do the work only you can do to awaken repentance and faith. Help us also just to come to this table um, celebrating your grace that really does supply everything we need for the Christian life. We don't have to leave here thinking, gosh, I gotta, I gotta work harder. We get to live here thinking, man, how amazing is your grace? How amazing is your grace to give me everything I need? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.